Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn them to Colossians chapter 3. You may or may not have ever heard of the church growth movement. But there are hundreds of resources and books on how to grow a church. I see Facebook ads all the time for it, actually. I think they've honed in the algorithm that I'm a pastor. And I see them all the time, and there's stuff on breaking the 200 barrier and how to attract and keep a crowd and how to preach better so people will connect with you. Maybe I should take that one. Don't say amen. And, you know, maybe it's like having this great dynamic kids ministry, youth ministry, and then maybe you can grow a church. Now, some of that's good, some of that's bad. But I do want to say that more and more people doesn't always mean you're being faithful to God's word. I I do want this church to grow, but I'm more focused on growth in the way that this passage describes growth. So when I talk about growing this church, I want us to grow in the way that Colossians 3, 12 through 15 shows us to grow. Because, you know, we we can grow this church and it can be a packed out room and boosted budgets and we could be impressing people, the talk of the town, and we might not be honoring God. But I know for a fact that if we pursue this right here and we grow in this way, we'll honor and glorify God. And that's what I want. Okay, so this is the growth I want. This is the growth that God wants. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. This is God's word. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Father, we come to your word this morning humbly. Um, God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you can be in this room, that you can use your word to provoke your people to good works. God, passage like this is a high calling Um, and I pray that you can use it to bear fruit in our lives so God I pray that I'm not seen that man's wisdom is not seen but God we come to you for the words of eternal life so change us transform us renew us in knowledge after the image of our creator Jesus Christ all for your glory in your name Jesus amen I have five points this morning Put on the identity of Christ. Put on the heart of Christ. Put on the love of Christ. Put on the grace of Christ. And put on the peace of Christ. And so I decided to title the message, Put on Christ. Sound good? Point number one. Put on the identity of Christ. If you look at verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. 
You know the difference between sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission is where you do something bad. Does that make sense? You, you, you have committed a sin. You have transgressed a law. You have gone too far. You, you've committed a sin. That's what we talked about last week in our sermon and how we needed to put those sins to death. So sexual immorality, we talked about covetousness, we talked about lying and anger. Okay, so put those sins to death, these sins of commission. But also, there are sins of omission. And these are sins where we don't do the good things we are supposed to do. Does that make sense? So we, we are omitting things from our life that we're supposed to be pursuing. So we fall short. We don't go far enough. And that's the focus of today's passage. Things we're supposed to put on. How we are called to live as saints. And that's the command of this passage. The first two words in verse 12. Put on. This could be translated as clothe yourself. To add to your life. To pursue certain things. So he's going to tell us things to put on. Last week we were putting off. We were putting to death. This week we are putting on. We're, we're giving birth to things in our life. We need to pursue certain things. Uh, Paul says elsewhere in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And that's really the heart of this whole passage. Last week was, and when I say the whole passage, I mean verses 5 all the way down to verse 17. Is, is Romans 13, 14 sums it up. Last week we talked about make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This week we're talking about but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope, my goal, I'm going to tell you up front of this sermon, is as we walk through this passage that you see as we walk through it, that really the controlling idea is, is to put on Jesus. Okay, so that's why I said that's the point to put on the identity, heart, love, grace, peace of Christ. So the first one we're talking about here is put on the identity of Christ. And this passage starts in such a beautiful way because notice here it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It does not say Put on then so that you will be God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. But put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So what this is showing us is that we don't put on, we don't add to our life, we don't seek these things to receive an identity from God. But instead we put on in response to our identity already settled in Christ. You see the difference there? So we put on... As God's chosen ones. You, you are already chosen and holy and beloved. And so therefore you act this way. It doesn't say act this way so that maybe you can be chosen, holy, and beloved. You see the distinction there? Okay, so what is your identity in Christ? Those three things. As God's chosen ones, holy, and beloved. Number one. Chosen ones of God. God wanted us. If you were here last week, you heard that you were not a first round draft pick, but instead you were the walking dead in sin. And God still chose you. You know the pain of not being chosen, 
of being overlooked, of not getting the invitation, of not being wanted. In Christ, as it says here in verse 12, you are chosen by God. You are not a Christian because you snuck in somehow and God said, how How'd you get in here? No, that's not what happened. But instead, you are a Christian because God wanted you to be a member of his kingdom. You are God's choice. Notice this is in the plural. As God's chosen ones, we are, we are the chosen ones of God in the sense there. And then it goes on and says, as God's chosen ones, holy. We talked about this at the beginning of our study, which means set apart for God's purposes, distinct from the world, God's chosen possession. Okay, It has this idea of, you know, you're a saint. And then finally, beloved. I just want to remind you this morning that your identity in Christ is that you are loved by God. What amazing, breathtaking News that you deserved wrath as we talked about last week in verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. But instead, you were given love. You were an enemy of God. But due to God's choice and His compassion and His kindness for you, you are currently in Christ, beloved. And this is who you already are in Christ. You don't have to accomplish it. You don't have to earn it. You just receive it as we read in um, chapter 2 verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, right? we just receive this. And then as verse 6 says again, so walk in Him. So after you, you receive the name of Jesus Christ, after you've been united in Christ, it's time to walk Christ. Imagine one day, um, little Madeline, who's not here yet, but she'll be here you know, in a couple of months, weeks now. Imagine one day she decides to put on a Georgia Bulldogs t-shirt. Okay, yeah, imagine that. What I would do is I'd pull her aside and I'd say, little Madeline, we're Dixons. And Dixons don't behave like that. (laughs) We're Tennessee fans, You're a loser and you're going to like it. Okay? This is who you are, so put this on. I'd give her the new shirt. And that's really the gist of this passage. You are united to Christ. Now put on Christ. Put on the things that are uh, more in align with who you truly, truly are. Okay, so what does that mean? Leads to point number two. Put on the heart of Christ, which is the rest of this verse compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So notice here that um, God's chosen one, holy and beloved, explains who we are, and then the put on, the command, um, is attached to put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Compassion means concern about others' bad circumstances. Literally here, bowels of mercy, uh, a deep inner part of, like this deep inner feeling in, in the depths of who you are. Uh, compassion is when you see a need, you feel a feeling, and it leads you to an action. It's not compassion if it's just mere recognition of a need, but you need to feel it deeply in your heart. And it's also not compassion if you just recognize it and feel deeply about it, but it needs to push you to actual action to be compassion. Does that make sense? So compassion is when you recognize a need, 
you feel the deep feeling so much so that it actually pushes you to doing something about it. Think of Jesus in Luke chapter 7, verses 12 through 15, where it says, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. You see that? He, he recognized the need. He felt compassion. And then it led him to an action. So where are you falling short? Maybe you never see the need because you're too focused on yourself. Maybe you never have the feeling for caring for others. Maybe you never care so much that you're moved to actual action. But let's be like Jesus and put on Christ and put on compassionate hearts. Number two, we see kindness. Kindness is one of those weird words where we all know what kindness means. You know, we, we get it, but it's one of those, if I ask you to define it, you might struggle. The um, textbook definition I saw was gracious sensitivity towards others that is triggered by genuine care of their feelings and desires. I just want to say kindness is caring about others and showing it. There's, there's sometimes this idea in our churches that Christians aren't called, the word we often use is we aren't, we aren't called to be nice. Now, I agree if niceness means obscuring the truth or ignoring God's word, but Christian, according to the, God's word, Verse 12 of Colossians chapter 3, we are called to put on kindness. So the question is, are you kind to others? Think of God in Romans chapter 2 verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is abundant in kindness. He has riches of kindness. That's who He is. The next word here is humility. Whenever you ask me to define humility, I'm always going to go to God's word in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4, which says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So this definition of humility is counting others as more significant than yourselves. Not just looking to your own interests, looking to your own thing, making sure your world is taken care of, but caring about other people, to, to look out for other people, to consider other people's interests and cares and concerns and needs as more important than your own. Now, same word here, but over against the false humility we talked about a couple weeks ago in chapter 2, verses 18 and 23. This humility was all about drawing attention to yourself. Um, it's it's uh, translated as asceticism. So let's, you know, cast ourselves down to the ground, you know, wear terrible clothing, act super, you know, destitute, so people pay attention to us. But true humility forgets itself in the pursuit of good for another. So... Are you living in humility this morning? Or is everything about you in some way? Do you live to serve others or for others to serve you? I want to draw our minds to Jesus. Philippians 2, 5-8, through 8, same passage where he defines humility. It says, have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility is valuing others, counting others as more significant than yourselves. And our best picture of humility is in the life and death of Jesus Christ. The next word is kind of similar to it where it says meekness. A couple definitions here. One one person who defined it said meekness is not being impressed with a sense of one's own self-importance. I thought that was interesting. Um, Another one said a humble quality of consideration for people and not thinking that one is more important. That said, you see how it's very similar to humility. So my question is, are you gentle with people? Are you humble? Are you meek? Or are you so impressed with yourself and your intelligence or your spirituality or your correctness that you don't care about how you affect others? Think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, which says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Finally, patience. Patience is the ability to endure, to bear with people, to not give up. In the context here, I think this is talking about patience with people, um, not just circumstances, not just general patience, but specifically patience with people. You see all these, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, all have to deal with how we're interacting with people in this room. We're going to talk about this more in a second, but again, I just want to draw our minds to Jesus. Second Peter 3, 8-9 through says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, next up, put on the grace of Christ in verse 13. Let's read it again. It says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. There's two actions here, bearing and forgiving. And these two actions, bearing and forgiving, are products of the five virtues. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Specifically patience, I believe. So if you're those five things, here's what it's going to look like. Bearing and forgiving. First of all, bearing. People are going to annoy you. Did you know that? People are going to annoy you. People can be chosen and holy and beloved and they're still not going to be who you want them to be. People are messy and life is messy. And this is the reality of living in a verse 11 church. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Things aren't always going to be super easy and smooth And I know that because Paul calls us to bear with one another. This means to continue with one another, to put up with one another, to keep going with one another, to have endurance with difficult people. This sounds difficult, and that's exactly the point. I don't want you to think or to assume that friendships or family 
or church members or marriages are supposed to be cakewalks. That's not the picture the Bible gives. Have you ever been to a cakewalk? You walk in a circle and they hand you cake. Okay, it doesn't get any easier than that. And that is not how life in the church works. There are going to be situations where you are going to have to bear with one another. Sometimes you're going to get annoyed in small group. You're not going to like someone in here. You're going to get bothered by someone's personality. And typically what we think, specifically in American Christianity, when there's you know 50 options to choose from when it comes to churches, that when that happens, it's time to go. It's time to quit. It's time to find a new church. No. It's time to bear with one another. Now, in this context here, in this word, I'm not talking about being sinned against. But I'm talking about people being difficult, annoying, frustrating. Bear with those people. Don't bail on them. Don't avoid them, but bear with them. That's what Christian community is supposed to look like. We keep going. We keep pushing. We, we refuse to quit. We have a grit about us in our community. But so often we can just leave when it gets easy or when it gets difficult or when we get annoyed or when we get our feelings hurt. Okay, so the second one, it doesn't just say bearing with one another, but it says, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Okay, so people are going to bug you, but people are not just going to bug you in this room. Let me be very clear. People are going to sin against you in this room. I haven't been here very long, but I'm guessing that might have happened before, right? We might have sinned against each other. Think about those sins we talked about in verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. That's happened here in this body. And when that happens, you're going to have a complaint. You're going to have complaints against people in this church, and people in this church are going to have complaints against you. Certainly, 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 you're going to have complaints against me. And maybe, probably not, I might have complaints against you, but probably not, right? But to me, I, I, I see it coming. But, probably not. Appreciate it. In this situation, okay, you don't just bear it. Bearing against sin is not enough. But what it says here is, you know, you bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. That's what we do when it comes to sin. We don't just bear it, we don't just ignore it, we don't just sweep it under the rug. We we voice it and we forgive it. The word forgive here is unique to Paul. It's not the normal word for forgiveness, but it's this word uh, charizomine. You hear the, the charis in there, the, the grace. So it, con- it conveys this idea that forgiving others is an act of grace. It's freely offered. It's often not deserved. That's what he's talking about here. So to put on Christ, according to this passage is to not hold grudges, to not be bitter, but one has a complaint to forgive, to let it go, to show grace. That's what we're called to do in this room, is when we have a complaint, when we're sinned against, okay, when we we see those sins in verses 5 through 11 and we face them, we're called to forgive. What is forgiveness? A commitment by the offended to pardon the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although... Not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. The way I like to think about it is forgiveness is a promise to someone else who sinned to no longer dwell on that sin, to no longer bring that sin up, to
to no longer talk about that sin to others and to no longer allow that sin to stand between us and our relationship. That's what forgiveness is. I'm going to say those four things again. Forgiveness is to no longer dwell on that sin, to no longer bring that sin up, to no longer talk about that sin to others, and to no longer allow that sin to stand between us and our relationship. The Holy Spirit took this passage this week and applied it to my life and convicted me of my sin of sitting in unforgiveness, bitterness, just letting it, just holding things against people. Pray he does the same to you right now in this moment to see that we are commanded to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience which would lead to forgiving each other. This should be a community of forgiveness. So let me ask, where are you currently withholding forgiveness from someone? Where are you living in bitterness? What do you refuse to let go of? Okay, so what should be our motivation for forgiveness? Look at the text, verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. According to this verse, the standard of forgiveness is not how great of a person you are. The standard of forgiveness is not how deserving the other person is. The question of whether or not to forgive does not hinge upon how bad the sin is. But the determining factor for forgiveness is not found in you. It's not found in the offending party. But the determining factor for forgiveness is how the Lord has forgiven you. That sets the standard for forgiveness that we show in this church, and in our lives. So here's how to forgive a difficult person. Here's how to forgive a heavy sin. Here's how to let go of this bitterness in your heart. Dwell on the forgiveness that you've received. Flip with me. It'll be on the screen. Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Jesus tells this parable. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. From your heart. This parable describes your life every day you live. 
and unforgiveness. Have you considered the forgiveness of Christ, that you have sinned against the holy God, that you have lived in darkness and rejected the light, that you have rebelled against the king, you have worshipped the creation over the creator, you have rejected Jesus, and the only thing you deserve is an eternity in hell, but the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live. Jesus died the horrific death that you should have died. And three days later, Jesus Christ rose back to life. And instead of justly crushing you as the sovereign king of the universe, he graciously forgave you of your sins, gave you his own righteousness, and promised you eternal life with him forever. You deserved hell and got Heaven, you deserved death and got life. You deserved wrath and got mercy. And in light of this great mercy, in light of this wonderful grace that you've been shown, in light of the debt that you've been forgiven, how can you withhold mercy and grace and forgiveness from others? Notice here it says in verse 13, we must forgive. Forgiveness is not an option for those of us in Christ. It's proof that we are in Christ. If we don't forgive, it may be a sign that we haven't actually been forgiven. Quickly here in verse 14 it says, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. He says above all, at first your mind goes to love being the most important virtue. And we have good reason for thinking that because of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, which says, Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. But here it seems like Paul's continuing his metaphor of clothing. He says to put on all these Christ-like virtues and then above all that put on love like a jacket or a belt. And that virtue, love, holds it all together. If you do this, if you put love over all those virtues, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Harmony Kind of reminds me of the bells this morning, right? It, it was different notes. They weren't all playing the same thing. They weren't in unison. But all these different notes creates this harmony. So if you take a G note and a B note and a D note, you have a G major chord, and it sounds beautiful. So in theory, you should take a group like us, a group of people who are so different from a worldly perspective, and it should sound like an absolute train wreck. shouldn't sound anything like the bells, right? It should sound... We're all playing different notes at different times. It, it, it sounds terrible. But if you take these virtues we're talking about today, if we wrap them up in love, you'll have Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, and it will be perfect harmony. It will sound like peace. That's what we want. Finally, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is something positive. It's tranquility, it's wholeness, it's completeness. It's kind of like this idea of harmony. It's Christ's peace. Notice that. Let the peace of Christ. This is peace that comes from Christ. And this peace does not come from compromising the truth. But it comes instead from centering around the truth of the word of God. And putting to death verses 5 through 11, and putting on verses 12 through 15. Okay, so what are we supposed to do here? Look at, the, look at this passage. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. 
every single commentary thing I looked up on this passage said that the word rule here could be interpreted using the word umpire. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire. So think about an umpire. He's in charge. He's sitting there. He, he calls strikes and balls. Um, he says that's allowed, that's not allowed. And so Paul's saying here, let the peace of Christ be the umpire, be in control. Let the peace of Christ rule. So in our lives, in our church, in our families, we need to let the peace of Christ be the umpire. Let the peace of Christ rule. Which means to make our decision decisions based upon what would uphold the peace of Christ. And let the peace of Christ be the determining factor for our actions, our attitudes, our words, our habits, and our choices. Could you imagine if we filtered everything we did and said and thought and acted and, and, and posted, every single thing, not through the filter of what would I like to do, what is my opinion, what is my preference, what would serve me best, but instead, if everything we did, we filtered through the idea of how can I let the peace of Christ rule in this situation? Notice here, this is a command fulfilled in verse 15. To which, the peace of Christ, to which indeed you were called in one body. It's in the plural. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and we are called to it in one body. The command is not for us to experience the subjective peace of God in our hearts which that's talked about in Philippians 4, that's true. But this is a command that's supposed to be obeyed within the church. You see that? We're supposed to do this together. We're supposed to let the peace of Christ rule in one body. We're called to that together. We uphold that together. We let that affect our decisions together. Since you were called to this command to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts in one body, that means that this command cannot be obeyed on your own. It has to be obeyed while you are committed and active and engaged in a local church. That's what we do here together. You know, we had our membership last week. It was awesome. We had a great time. We're going to be introducing a lot of members next week. We're excited about it. Um, but a question that kept coming up is, why join a church? And one reason is in this text right here. Do you see this? We are called to the peace of Christ in one body. And finally here, he says, and be thankful. I love how short this is. We've talked about being thankful several times. It keeps coming up. But it's just like a short little, at least for me, slap in the face from Paul. By the way, be thankful. Because you're not, right? That's how I'm feeling about it. Um, we should be the most thankful people in the world. Um, we should be thankful for life. For all the gifts that God has given us. We should be thankful for our salvation. Our union with Christ. Um, and that's just you know three words. And be thankful. But it just is a good reminder. That we can so often be. Very ungrateful spoiled brats. Okay so in conclusion. As a staff. Um, we are reading through a book. Called Lead Together. Um, and this chapter we just read. This past week and discussed. Was on balance. And one, one section of the, of the chapter just listed um, what a balanced, healthy leader should look like. And it said things like this. It said, he finds greater joy in the gospel than in the success of any ministry institution. He does not despise weakness, but fears delusion of independent strength. He sees his physical body as an instrument of his calling 
And because he does, he gives it proper attention and care. Personal holiness motivates him more than leadership position or ministry success. He loves Jesus more than he loves himself. That's a list of five out of a list of like 55, okay? And I feel like the whole staff had such a conviction over this list because there's something about seeing a list of what you're supposed to be and that terrible feeling from the Holy Spirit that reveals to you that you're not living up to what you're called to live up to. And I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you're feeling that way today. I pray that in the call to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, peace, and thankfulness, that you see how much you have fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe you're currently saying those words do not describe me. Maybe you know you haven't truly lived a life of beauty like you've been called to. That you're not living the life of holiness that you've been saved for. Maybe you're growing convicted this morning over sins of omission. If so, I have good news for you this morning. Jesus doesn't merely call you to these virtues. But Jesus shows these virtues to you. Jesus, as we've seen through this whole sermon, is full of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love for you this morning. That's what he feels towards you. Jesus was the perfect picture of this beautiful life in his life and ministry. And then Jesus went and died on the cross for your lack of these virtues. Jesus died for your lack of compassion. Jesus hung on the cross for your lack of humility, for, for your lack of forgiveness. He died for those things. So if you're feeling like you're missing it this morning, good. Join the club. I'll be the first one. I'm missing it here. Repent. Trust in Jesus and put on Christ for my non-Christian friends in the room. You can repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ alone for salvation. And you can be a new person today. Actually, the, the text we read at the beginning of the ser, uh, sermon, Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Um, Augustine read that verse. That's the verse he read um, that completely changed his life and converted him. So maybe this morning you can hear, put on Jesus Christ and your life can be changed with the power of the Holy Spirit. But for my fellow saints in this room, God's word for you this morning is not that different. Repent. Trust in Jesus. Put on Christ. Make that choice over and over and over again. Because He's going to change your heart and change this church. And this is the kind of church growth we're looking for here. So let's put on Christ together. Let's pray and ask Him to do that. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank You for this passage. Thank You for this word to us this morning. God, I pray that we can put these things on Make us a compassionate people, a humble people, a kind people, a gentle people, a patient people. God, help us bear with one another and forgive one another. God, help us wrap it all together in love. Help us pursue peace together. God, we want to look like you. Jesus, will you transform us to renew us in knowledge after the image of our creator? We do it through your word. God, that's what we're banking on this morning. We trust in you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.